Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andrew Degler, and today we are going to talk about the plans of Microsoft's venture fund M12 in Europe with Matthew Goldstein, and then we have a crash course in robotic process automation with Belgian startup Teroco. Now, here is a taste of what's coming up. You know, Kensington or Kansas City, what's the difference? <laughs> as, long as, I have an, as long as I have an internet connection and groceries, we're okay. Basically, fool systems into thinking they are interacting with a human user. There's more and more talk about citizen developers. And uh, in the near future, I imagine it will, be, it will be possible for people with absolutely no IT knowledge to make uh, basic adjustments or to even build basic bots themselves. The level of um, maturity and sophistication is, is behind here rel relative to the Bay Area. So I find myself having conversations with entrepreneurs uh, that I, I haven't had to have in the Bay Area in, in a decade. It's called a duct tape of IT, but I, I'd say um, in, in reality, that's probably more like Excel is a duct tape of IT. Now, first things first, let's take a three minute break to catch up with the most important European tech news of last week with our reporter, Annie Musgrove. Hi, I'm Annie Musgrove of TechEU, and here are some of the most important news stories in European tech. Finnish food delivery startup Quolt has raised 100 million euros from prior backers Iconic Capital, Highland Europe, 83 North, and EQT Ventures. The only new investor added to the roster is Goldman Sachs Growth Equity Unit. Mickey Kusi, the CEO and co-founder of Wolt, says the startup currently works with more than 10,000 restaurants and 20,000 couriers across 22 countries and 80 cities. The staff exceeds 1,000 people. Here's a direct quote from him. Our responsibility is something that should not be taken lightly. On one hand, we've seen growth across many of our markets. But on the other hand, we're facing a lot of uncertainty about what the future holds, as it looks like the world might be headed to a global recession of 6 to 18 months. It's this uncertainty that we want to prepare for, and do our best to ensure that we'll be around for many years to come. France will tax big digital businesses this year whether or not there's progress toward an international deal on a levy, Euractiv reports. The country's finance minister said on Thursday that adding such a tax had never been more legitimate or more necessary. A quick reminder, last year France became the first European country to pass a law that would require large international companies like Apple, Google or Facebook to pay three of their French revenues in the so-called big tech tax. This has been a source of contention with Washington, which considers that it unfairly targets U.S. digital companies. Berlin-based digital staffing company Zenjob has raised 30 million U.S. dollars to expand throughout Germany. The recruitment platform allows large and medium-sized businesses in logistics, retail, and office work to order staff, mostly student employees, through an online booking portal. The perk for students is that they can find short-term jobs last minute. The company claims that its app reaches about 15,000 students per day. Those students reside in 14 German cities where the company currently operates. And the fresh funding will help Zenjob reach the entire country and prepare for international expansion. Microsoft has announced that it would create its first data center region in Italy under an investment plan worth 1.5 billion US dollars, Reuters reports. Analysts expect the Italian cloud market to grow at a double-digit pace in the next few years. This is expected to happen because companies which have embraced remote working during the coronavirus crisis will increasingly rely on digital processes for their business. The new data center will be based in the Milan area, joining Microsoft's other 60 regions announced globally. In our episode last week, we also mentioned that Microsoft is investing another $1 billion in Poland as part of the same global cloud plan. 
Inifin, a Stockholm-based digital lender, has raised 30 million US dollars in a Series B led by EQT Ventures. Currently operating in Sweden and Finland, the fintech startup will use the funding to expand into new European markets. Inifin enables consumers to refinance their existing loans directly on a mobile app. Combining loan data with publicly available consumer data and AI, the platform offers a refinancing option and the company settles it for the user. In a press release, the startup claims it has lowered interest rates by an average of 64% for thousands of people who have so far saved about $10 million. Van Moof, the Dutch e-bike startup, has raised 12.5 million euros from Balderton Capital and assembly partner Sinbon Electronics. The investment will help the company expand as demand for its bikes is on the uptick. In a press release, the Dutch company says its sales have consistently been 20% above target throughout 2020 so far, which means the business is on its way to pass a projected annual revenue goal of about 100 million euros. These were some of the most important European tech news stories from the week of May 11th. I'm Annie Musgrove. Now back to Andre. Annie, thank you so much. And we are now ready for today's interview agenda. Now, the first conversation that I wanted to share with you today is about M12, which is the venture capital subsidiary of Microsoft and uh, which officially opened an office in London a few months ago. Actually, I wanted to record the interview back in February, but that didn't quite work. So after all the scheduling, I only caught up with Matthew Goldstein in late April. And we talked about his move to the UK, the differences between the Bay Area and London, and of course, about M12 and how it works. So let's check this one out together. <laughs> uh, my name is Matthew Goldstein. I'm a partner at M12. M12 is Microsoft's venture fund. Right. And uh, you moved uh, from the US uh, to the UK uh, a few months ago to become the very person who will um, be the face of uh, uh, M12 in Europe. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so the firm launched... Um, Summer 2016, I was one of the founding partners. Uh, we we have grown. Uh, we started as a team of four, and the investment team is now 11. Um, <clears throat> last year, uh, so we have three. We have uh, one in Bangalore, um, three in Tel Aviv, and uh, six in San Francisco. And then last year, I, I had the opportunity to move over from San Francisco to London to uh, uh, open up an office here. Right. So, what uh, what was uh, the reason for your for your decision to move? Did you want to move to Europe anyway? <laughs> me personally, or I'm twelve. Yeah, you personally. Um, well, me personally, I, I, I was offered the opportunity, and it sounded like fun. Um, you know, M twelve. Look, we're we're uh, we're investing Microsoft's capital. Uh, Microsoft is a global company, uh, and they have wanted us to be a global firm from day one. So uh, obviously, it's hard to switch on every region and every country around the world simultaneously. So when we launched, we launched with North America and Israel, uh, and then uh, started expanding. We added somebody in in uh, India, uh, and then you know we made several investments in Europe throughout 2017, 2018, uh, but finally uh, moved me over here in in 2019. Right. So you said it sounded like fun when uh, the uh, uh, offer was made. And uh, how fun has it actually been? Because you've been on the ground for, what, six, seven months now, even though the firm was launched, uh, uh, the office in Europe was launched officially in January. Yeah, so something like that. I mean, look, we're all in lockdown, right? So, you know, Kensington or Kansas City, what's the difference? <laughs> as, long as, I have an, as long as I have an internet connection and groceries, we're okay. Um, but no, it's it's been great. It's been really wonderful. Uh, 
the, the market and the community has been very welcoming, um, which actually is something I've found in every market outside the Bay Area. In the Bay Area, it's, it's very noisy. It's very competitive. Uh, the, the level of anxiety at all times is very high. Um, it's still a competitive market here, and, and I'm still learning um, how to collaborate, how to syndicate, and, and when and where I have to compete for deals. But broadly speaking, I think everybody from, from the entrepreneurs earlier stage, mid-stage, late stage, the other investors, the seed funds, later stage funds, everybody's happy uh, to have another investor in the market, more capital in the ecosystem uh, to support local companies. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. Right. And uh, so if you had to name just like a few things that sort of jumped at you after moving from the US to the UK, like what did you have to adjust to most? How, how, how do I say this politely? The, 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 the level of um, maturity and sophistication is, is, uh, is behind here rel relative to the Bay Area. So I find myself having conversations with entrepreneurs uh, that I, I haven't had to have in the Bay Area in, in a decade. Uh, that's okay, right? Obviously, that's fine. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, the advisors and the mentors that European entrepreneurs have access to, right? You know, if you're a startup in the Bay Area, you go to Starbucks and you bump into a, a founder who's exited three times and you invite him or her onto your board or, you know, be an advisor, be a mentor, and, and you get you get advice from people who've done basically exactly what you've done. In Europe, you know, every company I meet, you know, these are incredible entrepreneurs, incredible technologists and product people. And when it's time to go get advice, their options are limited. And so the advice they get, I'm not saying it's good advice or bad advice, it's just different, right? It's, it's coming from experienced executives at large corporates who've never raised venture capital before, who've never operated an unprofitable business before. So I, 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 there, there are a set of rules of engagement or expectations that I have that, that I think most uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and VCs have that aren't here yet. Um, and that's okay. The flip side of it is there's a lot of uh, kind of financial sophistication that you don't see in the Bay Area that you do see here, right? So, so I, you know, I've seen stage companies here that have a full financial model with, you know, multiple years of projections and a path to profitability. And, you know, they're, they're not shrugging their way through early stage financial projections, which, which is also refreshing in some way. Right. So when you say about uh, the conversations you haven't had uh, uh, in the Bay Area for 10 years, what, uh, what sort of conversations do you mean here? What kind of, uh, what, what kind of things <laughs> I, are they? I mean, we, we don't need to dwell on this stuff, but, but <laughs> basic, thing, basic things like, you know, the contents of a term sheet, right? And, uh, you know, I've, I've never put in a, a pay-to-play provision. I've never put in an anti-dilution provision, like, like a full ratchet or anything. And I have entrepreneurs asking me, like, very seriously, what are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? Uh, I have other term sheets that have this and that in them, and I'm just I haven't encountered those things in in a decade, right? Because they're not they're not part of the conversation these days uh, for for the best entrepreneurs in the Bay Area, right? But uh, don't you think that uh, these uh, sort of things uh, could uh, come back uh, with uh, the uh, outbreak and the crisis uh, hitting the industry? Maybe I, I I don't really think so, right? So so the thing to remember, or the thing I tell myself anyway, is that startups and venture are are very long term, right? funds raise capital and they have a three to five year new investment period, which means they are going to deploy that capital. So will COVID result in fewer funds raising less capital and therefore a slowdown in new investments at some point in the future? Certainly. Today, they have capital that they need to deploy. Obviously, a lot of that will go toward portfolio triage, but you know they need to deploy the capital and they're going to continue to invest in startups. 
uh, will prices come down? Uh, certainly. Uh, although at the same time, you know, there, there also may be a bit of a flight quality. So the, the best startups can continue to expect competition and, and uh, a lot of interest from investors to participate in their rounds. I, I guess the other thing that's changed in the last 12 years, right, if we're, if we're looking back at the last recession, the 2008 recession, software is eating the world. Uh, there are more acquirers, there are more investors, there are more sources of, of later stage capital. Wall Street understands what tech companies look like uh, and what their business models look like. And so the market's not going anywhere. There will continue to be new startups, there will continue to be investment capital for those startups. Uh, and, the, and the potential outcomes remain unicorn scale outcomes, right? We're, we're, we're not going back to a world where you know, selling a company for a hundred uh, is is you know what what VCs are going for, right? They're they're still they're still going for these unicorn scale outcomes. So so as long as there's still capital in the ecosystem and as long as there are still great entrepreneurs building stuff, uh, I, I don't think we'll see a reversion to you know these very cynical kind of private equity style deals. Right. Okay. Let's talk about uh, M12 a little bit. So it, it's not uh, it's not like uh, M12 has just arrived uh, in Europe. Uh, you've been active uh, here for, for for a while now, uh, but still uh, just a little bit of uh, understanding, really. So how tightly, first of all, M12 is actually connected to the rest of Microsoft? What sort of uh, relation is it? Uh, what sort of relation is it? It's it's essentially a a GPLP relationship. So Microsoft provides the capital, uh, but we're not a strategic investor. We're, we're a financially driven investor. You know, we, the, the, the investment team is, is essentially autonomous. At the same time, why do, why do we exist, right? It's, it's not like Amy, Amy Hood's the CFO of Microsoft. It's not like she needs the return on capital that we generate, right? You know, we're, we're a drop in the bucket for a company the size of Microsoft. Unless, I, unless I'm the first money into the next Uber, I'm, I'm never going to impact earnings per share, right? So, so why do we exist? We, we exist to help Microsoft learn, to generate signal, to win mindshare uh, in, in kind of the startup ecosystem and startup community. But we do that very authentically by being uh, a financially driven investor, right? So there's no strategic bias, essentially, in our, in our investment decision making. The way that I like to think about it is that any VC is going to spend 20% of his or her time engaging with, with LPs, uh, teaching them things, making them comfortable, raising the next fund. So do we, uh, and, and that twenty percent time is is a little different. You know, it, it's us getting pulled into all kinds of interesting conversations uh, around Microsoft and offering a uh, independent kind of venture venture perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, but but that's that's essentially the role. Right. And yet, uh, if uh, your portfolio companies are interested in uh, talking to Microsoft uh, for one reason or the other, is it actually easier for them to do so because you are uh, one way or the other connected uh, to the company? Yeah, yeah ab absolutely. So, so our tagline is, is unparalleled access, right? So uh, the investment team was, was, broadly speaking, recruited from outside of Microsoft. So there would be no strategic bias in our, in our decision making. Uh, but that also means that I'm not an expert at navigating Microsoft. Um, and, and as you rightfully point out, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs are excited to work with us because they're excited about building a close relationship with Microsoft and need help. Because Microsoft's big and it's hard to navigate. So in addition to the investment team, we have uh, a team called Portfolio Development that was entirely recruited from inside of Microsoft. They're all based in Seattle and Redmond. Uh, and they they are the concierge, uh, the, 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 the high-touch engagement. They hold our CEO's hands and walk them in uh, to Microsoft and, and make sure that they have a, a good experience. Now, 
there's no guarantee, right? Microsoft will not behave unnaturally just because we invested. Uh, but but at the same time, I, I think if you're if you're a B two B startup, and you could imagine a, a very close, valuable, mutually beneficial relationship with Microsoft, I think taking money from us and then letting our portfolio development team do what they do is the is the smoothest path to getting a very very uh, very proactive relationship. Right. So M12 now has an official office in Europe. Are there any uh, sort of numbers attached to it in terms of how many deals you're gonna you want to close uh, this year or anything like that what sort of plans and strategies uh, have you got so far i mean I can, I can i can run through some high level stats for m12 uh so we we have about 85 companies in our portfolio plus or minus um we've been active for around four years uh we've deployed over 500 million dollars historically our investment activity has been about two-thirds north america one-third uh, other and and other historically has been a lot of uh, a lot of Israel, but it's starting to become more uh, India and Europe as well. Look, I'm here and I'm I'm here to be active and and build a, a European portfolio. Uh, so you know somewhere between one and five investments per year. Some percentage of those will be you know Series A's and B's that we lead. Some percentage of those will be Series B's and C's that we co-invest with uh, uh, great VC partners that we built. Right. What has changed then? Like, what has changed for yourself? What has changed for M12 uh, with uh, COVID? Are you more focused on your own portfolio as uh, some other investors are, or are you still looking actively for uh, for new deals across Europe? We are certainly uh, actively looking for new deals. Uh, we have capital to deploy, and and uh, borrowing a phrase from the Oracle of Omaha, we are trying our best to be greedy when others are fearful. Of course, we are distracted. Uh, of course, uh, as I said, 85 companies in the portfolio, and they need a lot more time and attention, and in some cases, you know, bridge rounds and extensions and follow-on capital. So that that takes uh, more than capital. That takes time and, and attention. But absolutely, we uh, we're still in business. We're still looking for new deals. You know, m many a great venture vintage was built during a down year. Right. Uh, and 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 the, the last thing we want to do is is be reactive and shy away from the market when uh, when the next kind of uh, vintage of great companies are being started and, and funded. Right. And uh, then to wrap things up uh, naturally, what is it that you're looking for vertical-wise, stage-wise, uh, anything at all? Sure. So I think I covered stage, right? Series A, B, and C. We, we tend to lead A's and B's and co-invest in B's and C's, although we love to syndicate. So, so if any other VCs listening, hit me up. Uh, in terms of sector, so we are we are an entirely B two B focused firm, uh, so we're not we're not looking for kind of social mobile or gaming or e commerce or, or consumer fintech. Within the B two B space, I, I don't know we we have official sectors on the website, so I'll, I'll refer people to m12.vc for the official way that we think about it. But broadly, just think of the tech stack, right? Networking, storage, cloud infrastructure, DevOps, cybersecurity, business SaaS, both horizontal and vertical business SaaS. And, and frontier tech or, or vanguard, uh, as I think we call it, over the top. So drones and blockchain and 3D printing and all that fun stuff. Yeah, look, it, it, in the end, as I said, we're not a strategic investor, but but um, if, if an entrepreneur can imagine a close relationship with Microsoft being a game changer for them, then we want to hear from you, right? We don't require people be on Azure. There are no rofers. There's no right of notification. There are no commercial terms in our deals. You know, we're we're just a general investor, but but we know what our value add is, and our value add is is this unparalleled access to Microsoft. Uh, so if you think you can you can really take advantage of that, then we definitely want to hear from you.
Sounds good. Uh, thanks a lot again uh, for joining. This is it for today's questions. And uh, uh, thanks a million. Good luck and take care. Thank you. Stay safe. Now, let us move from a VC in London to a startup in Brussels. Earlier this year, I realized that I was probably the last tech journalist in the world, or at least in Europe, who didn't quite understand what exactly robotic process automation or RPA is. I mean, I had a general idea, of course, since we covered funding rounds for UiPath, which is one of the biggest startups in this industry, but that wasn't quite enough for me. So in early April, I went on to talk with uh, Pascal Kemps and Johan van der Bulk uh, from Terroco, which is a bootstrapped Belgian startup that builds RPA solutions for different industries. So if you are also looking to get more understanding about RPA and data bots and all that kind of things, let us listen to this one together. Right. Well, it started out a bit as a, a special a special case, basically. Um, the um, <clears throat> Johan was going to start up his company, had a lot of customer requests, so went to the accountant and asked for um, to start up uh, the company. And uh, then all of a sudden, he was asked for a name. So, uh, <laughs> so essentially, they came up with an abbreviation of the robot company. Uh, and that's really the starting point of Taroka as a company, or as a company name, I should say. And uh, how big is the company right now in terms of people, revenues, uh, anything really what you measure yourselves with? Well, basically, I think our key measurement is we, we are uh, uh, nine, soon 10 people. Um, and um, how we measure ourselves, because it's an emerging technology, is in how many markets and, uh, and verticals are we active. So we are currently active in Belgium, Netherlands. And we're also active in a series of verticals and specifically our core competencies or strongholds are logistics and marketing. Right. And uh, why, uh, why did you decide to start only on uh, these two uh, geographic markets and not uh, go like pan-European or something? We take it step by step. We've, uh, we've always pursued a strategy of uh, just... Um, building it up gradually, making sure all the fundamentals are good, and then take the, take the next step. We also strictly work with our own capital, so we are not taking external funding as we speak. So we've built it up uh, gradually, and we always make sure that we take every next step uh, from a very sound foundation. And why did you make the decision of not uh, raising money from external sources? Because we want to focus all our attention on the business. So we don't want to get distracted by shareholders, uh, people who've got an interest, who want to have a say, who want to get further information on why we do things, how we do things, conflicts of interests and uh, conflicts of vision. So we just want to keep it very straightforward, very simple. Right. So from what I read uh, from a brief overview of the company is that uh, both Johan and yourself, uh, you had very long uh, careers on more of a corporate side of things and then decided to uh, become become entrepreneurs, become founders uh, yourselves. So uh, can you just tell me your stories? Uh, how, how did it uh, how did it all happen? Well, for me, basically, I've come from, uh, I've been in the corporate world, um, mostly logistics and marketing and sales. And, um, well, essentially, there's just a point in your career where you think, well, is this going to be it until um, until I retire? And um, then you find out, you get ex exposed to, you know, very attractive new types of technologies, such as uh, what we're doing with Terraco, which are basically trainable systems. You know, that's just a point where you say, all right, this is it. Let's go for it. See what happens. That's my story. Very short and clear. 
How about you, Johan? Yeah, my story is even more closely related to the business we're in now. So I was working in one of the big four Belgian bank insurance companies. And uh, after the, the second financial crisis, the one in uh, 2012, 2013, we were really scrambling to 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 get to get our business uh, up and running uh, again. So uh, we investigated different technologies, and amongst those technologies was uh, was RPA to uh, improve processes and to um, and to link the the, the, the old back end systems to the to the new front end systems like apps and 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 web pages and things like that. I was. Uh, Responsible for that—that—that's part of the program. So uh, linking up the systems and finding uh, finding efficiency gains. So uh, we had the opportunity to uh, to invest in that a few years, and then uh, by 2015, it really became operational and usable technology. And by 2017, it was uh, mature enough and also economically feasible enough to uh, to start a business out of it so uh, i decided to take uh, to take the big jump and, and to become an entrepreneur uh, with the knowledge that i i gained there in the in the financial sector and how do you two know each other we studied together <laughs> let's say uh, pascal studied and, and i was also present at, at the university <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he generated a good income stream in selling off uh, notes and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Right. Okay. Let's talk uh, about about the product. So, what is uh, the product of uh, Toroco? And uh, uh, basically, yeah. Let's just start with that. What's the product, and uh, how do you how do you use it? Well, we like to describe um, basically what we do as, as helping companies implement uh, trainable systems. And the core of that is the more advanced RPA applications, uh, which means you don't need any code. You can, uh, you can just uh, train, if you like, uh, a system to, to do certain tasks. And uh, in RPA, that's based on business rules. But we're also uh, providing other types of technologies, such as uh, advanced OCR, whereby instead of teaching, uh, sorry, instead of coding and hard coding, and when certain parts of paper, or certain pieces of text can't be read, it has to then go to a human being. Those systems can be taught as well to recognize certain types of test, uh, text. And then we also are IBM uh, Watson certified because that's the deep learning logic of it, whereby you train systems by providing them uh, a lot of examples, basically. But the hard, I would say, at this point in time for Terraco is, is RPA, advanced RPA. Yeah, we, we, we really use this, this RPA technology, which is great in itself, but we really use it as a gateway to, to more advanced technologies. Uh, people are talking about AI, uh, artificial intelligence, that kind of machine learning. It's, uh, it's very promising technology, but it's also very hard for companies to know what to invest in, how much do we need to invest, how do we link those technologies to our systems. So um, we have some uh, some great partnerships and by using RPA, we can, uh, let's say, couple specific AI technologies with uh, certain customer needs. For instance, we have a, a client, it's, a, it's a, a local government who wants to publish documents online but they need to be sure that those documents who are posted online are GDPR compliant, so they have to be anonymized. And that's what something we can do. We take the document with our RPA bot, we take the document from the, from the core system, we use 
in this case, NLP, natural language processing, to anonymize the document. And then we publish it in the public site. It's all, it all goes automatically. So it's both it's customer intimacy, it's the, 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 the citizens who have a, a better service. Also, it's compliance because uh, the GDPR uh, rules are followed. And also it saves time and, and work from the, from, from the people working in the, in the government service. So that's an, an example of what we do. And most importantly, no code needed, trainable. Right. So uh, can you, uh, like, still, it's been, it's been a while since the concept of uh, RPA uh, came along, uh, but I have to say, I still don't fully understand uh, what, uh, what it means and how it is uh, different from everything else in the market. Can you just try to uh, explain it to me in a, in a simple way, maybe on an example or something? Well, the, the key the key with an, with RPA technology, and the fact you're confused is perfectly logic because uh, logical because there's there's a lot of things called RPA, but in essence, what it does is it approaches systems, data, information uh, via a user interface. So it basically fools systems into thinking they are interacting with a human user, basically, and so that's that's why you don't need basically code to um, to uh, approach a system. Uh, normally, you have to start to code and write interfaces and all these type of things. And uh, the, the essence of RPA is that it doesn't need that. It can go via a user interface. Um, and what it then does is it pulls in information from whatever it sees on a screen. That can be Excel, it can be an email, it can be an ERP system, a marketing automation system. And it's going to process that in an internal business rules engine, which instead of normal coding, you actually build that up like you build up a flowchart. And that is, in essence, what pretty much an RPA system is supposed to do. However, and this is why RPA tends to be such an elusive concept, there is RPA and there is RPA, just like you know, you've got a bicycle and you've got SpaceX's uh, rockets. Uh, they're both modes of transport, but they're very, very, very different things. Um, and essentially, that's the same thing in the RPA world. You've got certain applications that are coupled to other applications uh, like Microsoft, like SAP. And then you've got the more advanced applications, which we call data bots, which are complete standalone, which can operate on any system, which are completely technology platform independent. And they can they can't just they don't just have to go via the user interface. They can also go in on a system level or directly on a data level. So API or SQL level. And so that's why there is so much confusion around what is RPA, what can it do, um, why also we see that certain pilots and tests are failing. And it's simply because you know, it's such a wide, broad um, range of applications with very fundamental um, differences, even though in the essence, they can approach a system via a user interface, uh, which is what qualifies them as being called an RPA. Right. And uh, on the customer side of things, uh, you say that you build uh, the logic uh, uh, in a flowchart-like uh, uh, sort of uh, mode. So is it, uh, is it like a special language that you have to use for that? Is it a special interface? Like how, how does it work for the customer? It looks most like, um, like business process modeling effect. So when you know the, the flowchart diagrams, from, from business process management mm -hmm. with uh, with the boxes and the, the diamonds it's it's, it's uh, set up like that so you import activities in a flowchart and then afterwards by running the the flowchart the activities are are replicated that's that's the way those systems learn can 
be sometimes even more easy because there also in some softwares there's a recording function but there it's like yeah you literally record what the user is doing mostly some cleanup is is necessary to really make it work in an efficient way sort of a macros yeah sort of yeah it's a macros macro on steroids i could say yeah Right. And I have to say that uh, even though I'm still, so now I understand it a bit better, of course, but uh, uh, RPA has been around for a while and it's sort of become a bit of a buzzword really uh, in the industry. So can you tell me again in maybe a few examples, what is it good for and what is it not good for? What's it good for is is in a typical corporate le corporate le uh, legacy environment. You will have legacy applications. You will have new replications, and then you've, you're confronted with with new technology, which you have to follow because all of your competitors are following it. So you've got different generations of systems. You've got different technology platforms, which which are around. That really is the habitat of, of RPA because they can couple it all together. And uh, the more advanced RPA applications, which we call data bots, they can interact in various ways with with all those different types of different types of systems. That's really a perfect um, um, environment for for RPA to, to to thrive as a as a technology. Um, what it's not good for um probably johan is in a better position to give more examples but but, but clearly for me a no-go is it it's not a, a substitute for the off-the-shelf systems right it's it, it's not good to, to to change an entire to change an entire um erp system or warehouse management system or transport management system it really fills the gaps yeah, it's not uh, it's not that you replicate SAP or our dynamics or uh, with uh, with the, with the RPA software. You have to see it as an an extra tool in the toolbox. It's somewhere located between human interaction and what computer systems uh, really can do. So I do not advise to replace existing. Uh, existing uh, legacy software with with RPA, we always advise to supplement existing software with with RPA by adding new capabilities and by taking off the the administrative repetitive burden uh, that the employees now often have to do. How in in many organizations, it's Excel is the most used tool because Excel is used to transfer data between different applications. When we see that, we say that's 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 an ideal an ideal job for a, for a data bot. In fact. Right, and uh, uh, what you what you just described uh, uh, these uh, few things, it doesn't seem that uh, it can be done without some sort of uh, adjustments made to the product uh, from your side. So my question is, how scalable is an RPA startup uh, such as Taroko? Basically, most companies they start on a very small scale, so you've got a very basic, very low, easy entry uh, offering by the different providers, but but they are in more and more companies becoming just part of the corporate uh, toolbox, essentially. So it can be scaled. So you can, to, to symbolize it, uh, to, to visualize it, you can have one, what we call data bot that is just doing a first task. But after a while, you can you can have 10, 15, 20 of them, which are then governed by a so-called orchestrator or super bot, which is then based on, for example, hey, there's high order intake happening right now at, at customer service. So we're just going to, allocate 
you know, out of those 10 bots, 15 bots, we're going to allocate 10 bots directly to customer service. And then in the evening, uh, we've got the invoice processing. So we're just going to throw all 15 bots at the invoice processing. So um, it is extremely scalable. Uh, if and that's the key and that's that's what we think we're, we're pretty good at if they're properly configured from the start if you build up every bot as we call it in the in, in a separate way and you work with different types of developers then it'll be a lot more difficult to make them talk to each other but if the setup is done right from the start you can scale it up to whatever you want it to be on your own servers in the cloud doesn't matter it can all be done without ridiculous cost or ridiculous investments your, your remark was right. So there is always some fine tuning um, what, what the bots is concerned because every every IT landscape, every IT application is different or is, is used a little bit different, even if it's 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 uh, off the shelf software. But um, what is also important to realize is that building a bot takes three to five weeks max. So we can go very quickly in this customization. And as Pascal mentioned, once you have built one or a few bots, you, you start having components. If you build them with, with, with good, good, uh, good guidelines, you build them component-based. And so you will be able to, to reuse these components and to, to use these building blocks in different manners. So you, you will always be quicker and quicker to, to, uh, to build, to, to configure, to train uh, new, new bots, um, and also Software is is uh, is making uh, huge improvements, and um, there's more and more talk about citizen developers. And uh, in the near future, I imagine it will be it will be possible for people with absolutely no IT knowledge to make uh, basic adjustments or to even build basic bots themselves. Right, and it seems like there's a general movement of no code, so called. It's uh, it's getting pretty big. Do you actually believe in this uh, concept in general? I, I have a I have a double feeling, a mixed feeling about that. I certainly believe in the in the concept from a st point of view that uh, having to type lines and lines and lines of code that that won't be necessary in a in a foreseeable future. Um, so you will be able by using drag and drop functionalities to 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 really construct uh, an application. On the other hand, it takes more than knowing how to write the correct lines of code to, to build a, a program. You have to have a certain mindset that the, an IT developer is, 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 is not, not only someone who, who types code, it's someone who, who takes uh, structure into account, who, who thinks about, about the usage of variables, the efficient usage of, of, of data. So these skills, they won't disappear because the coding gets easier, so it's really a mixed. So I, yes, I do believe in low low code. No, I don't believe that anybody, no matter what skill set, skill set, will be able to to build efficient bots as far as or or efficient software for that matter. As far as it's it's really business critical, complex processes. Yeah, I mean you can compare it to building a wall, right? I mean, I'd say the, the parts that you code will be the bricks. You can replicate them at a high, very high volume and and um, and, uh, and and through that, keep the cost low. And then the no code will be the cement between the bricks, basically, which allows you to give it a structure and a form and to bring all these bricks together into a, a solid, uh, well-performing, well, in this case, IT landscape, but in that case, a solid wall that does what it's supposed to do. So they go hand in hand. 
Okay, so back to RPA in general. Uh, one of the probably better known uh, companies in the RPA industry is UiPath. Uh, they uh, raise a lot of money and so on. But there is also a ton of uh, other companies doing the same thing. So how does the competitive landscape uh, look for you? What's the market like? Well, um, the market is uh, very competitive at the moment. Um, we can't we can't ignore uh, if if we look at the start of this of this uh, movement of this of this new technology. Well, you really the guys who made the markets market is uh, a few years ago is uh, Blue Prism, but uh, in the meanwhile they have they've seemed to lose some some traction. And when in two thousand fifteen they were. Uh, there was uh, there was a no regret move to go with them. They have now lost the terrain to UiPath, which is uh, I think clearly the market leader now. And the other uh, one who is uh, heavy competitor is Automation Anywhere. This is for the moment uh, the top two tools, and they both are really in a, in a race one against one against the other to to add functionalities to uh, to increase the, the the robustness of their of their bots. So. Uh, from a client's perspective, it's a, it's a good case that there are really two very very big players competing against each other in building the the, the best bots. That being said, there are all the, the 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 real big players are also entering the market. So as uh, a SAP uh, did it by buying a small RPA company, Contextor, uh, now more than a year ago, and is. Uh, incorporating RPA technology into their core system, and uh, rather recently also Microsoft uh, uh, entered that market, building upon their Microsoft Flows uh, experience. So it's uh, it's looking very promising. Uh, the, the the fact that those uh, tech giant giants are are entering the market proves that it's a, it's a viable market. And the fact that there are two major competitors taking uh, the, the the biggest parts of the markets and all also and always adding functionalities uh, makes it, it makes it promising. And also uh, as a as a as an as an interesting side result of it, that means that uh, that also on a, on a commercial point of view, like uh, license costs and it, the, this, this, these things are quite reasonably priced. And uh, with uh, with with competition entering, it will uh, it will remain that way, I guess. So how does it influence you as a company, this tightening the competition on the market? It means that uh, we have to invest very heavily in our, in our people. There are two, three, four releases a year. That means that we, uh, we invest a lot in, in training. So uh, we, we work with the market leaders uh, and on top of that, some, some other additional uh, artificial intelligence software. So that means that uh, at our company, we, we spend a lot uh, of our, of our uh, of, of, uh, effort and budget in, in, in training to keep, to keep up with, uh, with the newest technology. But that's, that's necessary because a lot of this, if this technology is, is really very, very promising and can deliver business value on a very short term. So, uh, we like to do that. So does every company on the market create their own sort of data bots, their own uh, platform? Or uh, do you all basically use some sort of uh, off-the-shelf components to uh, put together something for your customers? The bots that are used, so the, the, the let's say the, the software shell is, uh, is pretty standard. It's a UI bot automation and everything that the, the, the software I talked about earlier. Building the scripts, that's, uh, that's really uh, 
uh, work that that's done for for each client individually mostly because uh, everyone has a as 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 different landscape uses different systems or, or uses systems in uh, in different ways so there are there are the so-called bot stores where uh, where you can download components but it's uh, almost never the case that it's just a, a plug and play uh, way of working always there is some some configuration to be done uh, in order to really fit it to the to the client it's not uh, it's let's say it's uh, it's not confection but bespoke Right. Yeah, this is this is really interesting. It's a fascinating industry that I really know so little of. Uh, so it's great that I have a chance to talk to you too and uh, get some understanding. Uh, so in, uh, to wrap uh, things up, in your opinion, what do you think are the main challenges of the uh, whole RPA concept? And uh, how do you approach those challenges? And how do you tackle them? Well, when it, when it comes to RPA, there are a few. First is still the perception. It's called the duct tape of IT. But I, I'd say... Um, in, in reality, that's probably more like Excel is a duct tape of IT because these, uh, these, these, particularly the data bots, they've now been used in very large corporations in very tough um, environments. And that's, uh, uh, so the, they are very robust. Uh, it has nothing to do with duct tape. Uh, the second point is then um, their flexibility is their Achilles heel. Um, uh, the pretty much anybody can go online and get certified and you know put a certificate on LinkedIn and call themselves certified. But the point is that does your bot that you receive is it then scalable? And the example I gave earlier, will you be able to couple them together and put a super bot above it if if needed? Uh, secondly, how powerful is it uh, in terms of error handling? That is an Achilles heel because if it receives an unexpected reaction from a system, you as a user will understand and you go moaning and you log in an IT ticket. But of course, you know a bot can't do that, so it has to it has to know what to do when that happens. So those are those are typical examples of of things which less experienced uh, users are are um, will not be so aware of and which cause bots to become very unstable. So the, the key really in, 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 selecting is in selecting a good implementation partner is, is not so much how many deployments they've done, but, but how much operational experience do they have? Have they worked with these things over a, couple, over a, series, over, over a good period of time? So, so those are, are, I would say, the, 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 t, the two uh, key challenges is, uh, is really still the perception within some, some IT uh, areas. Um, and secondly, the potential instability, uh, which is a natural outcome of the fact that they are uh, so flexible um, as, a, as a technology. And those two things are, of course, they can be covered and they should be covered by a good implementation partner, but they're still challenging at times to um, uh, too many parts of the industry. And just out of my own curiosity, is there a sort of like a technology stack that would be considered the golden standard of of the RPA? Like, like, like what do you use to write? Uh, uh, what programming languages? What technologies do you use to write? Uh, adjust uh, the bots and so on. If if we are if we are um, looking for uh, for new employees, people with uh, with experience in uh, rather modern uh, languages like uh, C sharp. .NET, uh, JavaScript, they are the best prepared to, to, to start with, uh, with this technology. That being said, there is no one RPA standard language. That means that every company, every robot software supplier like uh, UiPath and Automation Anywhere have their own, yeah, I, I 
couldn't say coding, but they have their own uh, scripting conventions. And it's not so that you can build a bot in one of these tools and transfer it automatically to one of the others. So uh, standardization is not yet there. Right, understood. So, and how about how about yourself? How about Taroko, the company? Uh, can you just uh, maybe give me a couple of examples of uh, projects that uh, you've been busy with? Well, Johan just gave one example, which is a very classic case now in in GDPR terms. Is you need to uh, register the license. You ask an approval for something. Can be a building. Can be whatever. Uh, you send it to the government, and the government has to then publish it. So it has to make it available. So how do you anonymize all these documents, which can be in PDF format in different systems, and so on and so on? That's a that's a perfectly perfectly good case. Um, other examples of of uh, things that we're doing is a very classic in the logistics industry, where you've got a lot of players, a lot of different truckers, even mom and pop companies companies who are driving for bigger companies who are then driving for bigger companies and so on and so on. So there's a lot of transferring of data and information. So we've got a lot of projects going on there in terms of reg reading, registering the invoices, but also uh, uh, uploading proof of deliveries in a consistent format, um, a very typical case. And then when we enter, you know, the other area of activity that we are um, that, that that we're very strong in is, is marketing right marketing the marketing stack as you if you've ever seen the the the, the charts there about there's about 7000 different marketing tools and systems out there so it's it's really there is no such thing as a marketing stack it's it's always bespoke and and that brings along a lot of issues in terms of coupling especially if you're in a corporate environment so you know just coupling your marketing automation and your CRM to your ERP system isn't quite as easy as it sounds well that's a classic uh, application uh, for, uh, that we deliver there's one example that I'd like to add in this uh Unfortunate Corona times because uh, we started just this week working for a hospital, a big uh, Belgian hospital in Brussels, um, where we are uh, really doing administrative work. Well, uh, it's a, it's a bit technical, but uh, hospitals they are driven by codes. Huh? Every every uh, everything that is being done there, every service is that's being delivered as a code, and this code has to be transferred. To, uh, to to invoices for uh, for health insurers for for uh, for patients so uh, and that's a that's a very manual work which which it asks a lots of effort of course in these times uh, hospital uh, need all their all their people on the front I would say uh, helping uh, really in the, in, in the taking care of the patients so we will uh, we will build uh, in the next coming weeks a bot or bots, uh, really to help them deal with the administration behind all these uh, all these processes, who had to be set up now in a in a very uh, swift manner to 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 deal with the crisis, of course. Right. Okay. Great. This is this is really interesting. And uh, uh, since uh, since you already mentioned uh, the uh, outbreak, uh, the pandemic uh, going around, how does it actually influence uh, you as a company? Well, we, we've got a shift in the type of demand, clearly. Johan gave the example of the hospital, but we also see um, just HR being overwhelmed with uh, requests for temporary unemployment and these type of things. So so whereas in the past, you know, of course, we had business with them. It wasn't quite as as, as, uh, as big. Uh, but then there's another area, and that's the supply chain industry, right? Since we are in logistics, what's happening now is a normal supply chain is moving, right? So either one part pulls forward the next part or 
the other way around. One part pushes forward the, the, the part after it. What you see now is that you can't make deliveries or you need to put take into consideration specific delivery requirements and these type of things. But your production, your material planning on the inbound will have typically no visibility whatsoever on that type of uh, on that type of uh, information. So what you now what we're now seeing is a kind of demand whereby we show or we try to help companies readapt their production plan based on the actual demand and the actual amount demand being well which companies are still in a position to receive something. That's something which um, which is a huge task uh, which just um, can't be achieved typically through uh, normal systems and it can't be achieved uh, in any way in a quick way basically with traditional software or traditional development. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So last last question, do you know how many data bots that you have developed are currently active? I don't know of any that's not active. And I must admit, I didn't count, but it, we must be close to 100 in the meanwhile, in the three years that we are, we're active. But I don't have heard of any client who said, no, I'm, I'm not using the bot anymore, on, on the contrary. Most clients who have one bot uh, keep coming back to ask uh, or additions or to to ask for new uh, new new skills. Maybe not right away, but we have uh, we don't we didn't we didn't lose a client up to, up till now. Keep keep in mind a bot license is one thing, but you can push it full of activities until it's running twenty four seven. So in fact, uh, you know, one hundred is the number of licenses, but pretty much. All of them, or the vast majority of them, will be running a whole host of additional processes, multiple processes. So they are supporting more than one function within right. a company. So that's um, that's a that's a better metric. Although I must admit, we've never actually measured how many we've done. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a very good question. I will do that right away. <laughs> right, sounds good. Uh, Johan Pascal, thank you so much for uh, talking to me. Thanks a lot for the explanations, and uh, yeah, good luck with thank everything you. you're doing. Good luck with Terraco. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Thank you very much. And this is it for our today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at podcast at tech EU. Wherever you are, we hope you can stay safe and take care of yourself and people around you. I am going to talk to you on Thursday in a special episode about startups working on mobility and smart city solutions in these challenging times. Until then, enjoy your week, take care, goodbye.